With Israel and the Palestinians continuing to fight, the eyes of the world stay focused on that small land at the eastern end of what the ancient world called the Great Sea. Who is going to control the Temple Mound? And is there a great Western leader who can come up with a ace that will trump the situation in the Middle East? I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you open the book of Revelation for yourself. Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtson, takes us to chapter 13, a chapter that exposes the career of Satan's ultimate deceit. Mention just the numbers 666, and everyone begins to speculate. Let's join Dave as he introduces our lesson today with some of the Antichrist sightings that were made in the past, and then goes on to present a balanced biblical picture of what we actually can know about Antichrist and his career. When I mention the word the beast, you can think of a Stephen King horror film, and we think of 666, we think of the Antichrist. In fact, in my own life, I can look back over and I've heard messages where John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist. I've heard other messages where Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. If you go back in history, if you read Jonathan Edwards, he said that the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist. And, and you can go back even a little bit further, and they'll say that the Islamic scourge that swept Europe during the Middle Ages, they were the Antichrist. One of the things as you go through church history is you find out that a whole lot of people like to point their finger and say, there is 666. In fact, I even had an associate pastor years ago named Ray Pritchard that took my name and made it work out to be 666. You know, that's a great guy to work with. As we study about the history of Antichrist, we find out that there's all kinds of strange identifications. You say, Dave, how can I really figure it out? How can I really know about this Antichrist? If we turn to Revelation chapter 13, it says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This is the introduction of the Antichrist. But as we begin to study this chapter, we're going to find out that down through the centuries, in fact, way back, even in the early 2nd century, believers like yourself wondered, is Antichrist a spirit? Is he an attitude? In other words, is he an influence and not just one individual? And there were men like Polycarp, who was a great church father, that was a disciple of John the Apostle, and, and he held that Antichrist was an attitude, it was a spirit. Then there was another person like Irenaeus, for example, was a great church father, and he said, no, Antichrist is a person. And so down through church history, the last several hundred years, we've gone back and forth. Is he an attitude? Is he a spirit? Kind of a, a generalized anti-Christ, an anti-rebellion against Christ? Or is there ultimately going to be an individual that is a person on planet Earth who's the ultimate thing that Satan can produce, the ultimate man that Satan can live in, the ultimate man that Satan can try to use to usurp the authority of planet Earth. The truth of the matter is, I believe that it's both. As we open up the pages of Scripture and we start to think about Antichrist, Antichrist is both an attitude, but he's also a person that's going to come. I want you to realize as you open up to 1 John chapter 2 that the Apostle John that wrote the book of Revelation, he also wrote probably to the church of Ephesus in 1 John, and he warned them about a spirit of Antichrist. 
So as we begin our discussion of this great arch enemy of God, I want you to realize that back in the first century, the Antichrist spirit was infiltrating the church of Ephesus and the church of Laodicea and the church of Hierapolis, all these churches that John was concerned about and he was ministering to. In fact, he wrote this epistle. If you turn to 1 John chapter 2 and beginning with verse 18, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour. A whole lot of people are asking me, Dave, do you think we're living in the last days? You know, do you think we're getting close to the end? I've taught you this for many years and I want to remind you again. From the biblical perspective, history moved on a linear sequence towards the coming of Jesus the first time. When Jesus was born in 5 or 6 B.C. and when he was crucified about 33 A.D., when he rose again from the dead, the culmination of the Old Testament took place. If you have a Bible in your lap, that you have a book that predicted for hundreds of years that the great God of the universe would send his promised one. He would send his Messiah into the world. That's why we worship him. That's why we adore him. You see, history was moving in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel in chapter 9 predicted that 483 years after Nehemiah left Persia to go back and rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem, 483 years later, the Messiah would come. And he walked through the Golden Gate exactly 483 years in the spring of the year, just like Nehemiah left to go rebuild the wall in the spring of the year. Jesus, 483 years exactly, walked in Jerusalem. Unlike the second coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ was predicted with, my, with minute accuracy. And that laid the foundation of the church. You know, that's what caused so many Jewish people to respond to him. People like Anna, people like Simeon, people like Peter, James and John, they're all Jewish. And history took a right turn when Jesus ascended to heaven. Remember when we studied Revelation chapter 12 about the male child, the pregnant woman and the dragon. Remember how the the text of Revelation just jumped right from the birth of the child to the ascent into heaven. The reason John did that is for him, history met its climactic moment when Jesus conquered sin, when Jesus rose again from the dead. And now for the last 2,000 years, we've been walking right along a precipice. Jesus is coming back for his bride. We learn in Revelation 3.10 that he promised a protection to the Philadelphian church, that they would be kept in an out-from position, and they would not face the wrath of the Great Tribulation. And so for 2,000 years now, since Jesus ascended into heaven, we've been walking along the edge of a cliff. That was the last hour in the first century. It's the last hour today. And I want you to live like that. I want you to realize, even if you don't believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, I want you to know that you're living in imminency. The reality of your life is that you can lose your physical life just like that. You're living in the last hour. That's why it's so important to be connected with Christ. It's why it's so important to know that that he's in your life and you're receiving his forgiveness. That's why John wrote in the first century, my brothers and sisters, I love you. You're my beloved ones. Don't you know we're living in the last hour? But as we live in the last hour, not only is Jesus going to come back at any moment, but in the body of Christ, in those that say they're following Jesus, there will arise false teaching. You need to realize that the evil one will be right here in this room. He'll be right here in your life. And he's going to be trying to snuff 
the real truth of God's word. He tries to produce pretenders. He tries to produce people that really don't allow the real personal Jesus to come inside of them. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because John wrote about it. Look what he says. My dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. That's the person of Antichrist that we'll be studying about a little bit later in the coming weeks. The person of Antichrist is a final revelation, Satan coming into a man. And during the last three and a half years of tribulation, he's going to unite the world under his authority. It's going to be like the Nazis multiplied in a million times. And John is saying, I told you, the Antichrist, this great ultimate henchman of Satan, is coming. But then he warns the church back there in the first century about something else. And we want to begin our discussion of Antichrist by warning ourselves about not just this ultimate person. Because if the rapture take place before the tribulation, none of you that know Christ as your Savior are going to face this ultimate archenemy of Jesus as a person. You're going to be with the Lord. And you can say, well, I don't have to worry about Antichrist. Oh, yes, we do. Every single one of us are going to face the spirit of Antichrist even this week. He says, I have, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, but even now, look what he says, many Antichrists have come. John was saying in the early church, there was already this great division. There were those that loved Jesus, that worshipped Jesus, that had Jesus in their life, were responding to the biblical Jesus, were learning to adore him, allowing him to change their life. But on the other hand, right within the church family, there were those that weren't really connected with him, didn't really know him. And they were following a spirit of Antichrist. They will, Dave, how can I know? How do I know who I'm following? How do I know who I'm connected with? Well, the great thing about God's word is that when you ask those questions, man, the text jumped right in and through the Apostle John, he answers for us. Look what he says in 1 John chapter 2, the next little line. This is how we know it, that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them really belonged to us. First of all, what John is saying is that those who really know Christ as their Savior will hang in there with the body of Christ. In other words, they'll realize that blood is thicker than water, and Christ's blood is thicker than any physical blood. One of the ways that, that true believers manifest themselves is that they hang in there in the gathering of God's people. They hang in there with the body of Christ. I can think of people that would say the right words and they would, they would be present at the right times. And yet, over time, some of them have just wandered completely away. And I'm not talking about people that moved away or people that, that needed to go to other church families for ministry. But the truth of the matter is there's some that apparently follow Christ for a time and then they move into completely different teaching. They move into completely different attitude towards life. And we can throw our hands, how can that ever happen? John wrote it right here. It said some will go out from us because they really were not of us. If you have Christ in your heart as a person, if you have had that moment in your life where you really invited the biblical Jesus to come and live inside of you, then one of the things he'll do is help you to endure and you'll keep having a love for God's children and you'll keep meeting together. You won't do what Hebrews warned you against. You will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I want to warn you, if you don't care less about being with God's people, 
If you don't care less about praying and singing to the Lord Jesus, if you don't care less about this book, in other words, if, if you get away from this book for a few days, if nothing happens inside of you, if you don't feel any prompting, if you don't feel any pull back towards the truth of your Savior, then you need to really examine your heart. Maybe you haven't really let the Christ into your heart. Maybe you haven't really allowed him to come inside of you. You see, just having information in your head, just having been able to spit out the right answers isn't enough. This is a relationship, my brothers and sisters and friends. This is the real thing. Jesus is a real living Lord and Savior. And when he comes inside of us, he really does stuff. He really changes us. That's what John the Apostle was concerned about it. Now, I'm not talking about struggling. Man, I struggle, and I have a part of me, an old nature that's a smelly corpse that has lousy attitudes. But I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's another Dave Wurzen inside of me. And when I act like a jerk, and I get angry with you, and I don't ask you to forgive me, and when I spill out on Mary or spill on the kids acid of, of words that shouldn't come out, it bothers me. If you don't feel any of that, then maybe you've never really met the precious Savior. Maybe you've never had him come inside your life. Well, there's an easy remedy for that right now. Be honest with him. Break before him. Right in your own heart. Let him inside. Let that precious Savior that died for you, let that Savior that rose again, let it come together for you and let Jesus inside. But I want you not to get discouraged. Some of you get discouraged because you have people let you down and people that even taught you or people that even mentored you, people that even led you to Christ. They gave you the right words. As you look back over their life now, they've wandered away. They went out from us. And you can say, man, maybe this Jesus thing isn't the right thing. And you need to listen to the Apostle John because he said, man, way back in the first century, they wrestled with those that left the gathering of God's people and abandoned their relationship with Jesus that evidently, because it didn't last, they didn't have their real thing. They just had it up here. They never got it down here. But there's another way that we can tell when these false teachers begin to expose themselves to us. And I want every one of you to know, if you have Christ in your life, whenever you hear on the radio, whenever you hear someone like myself teaching, I want every one of you to know that if you have invited Jesus into your heart, then you have a truth detector that's deep in your soul. And there's very powerful insight that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will give to you. How many of you have ever heard a teacher, and about halfway through the lecture, you know, they're supposed to be teaching this book, and it's supposed to be church, and it's supposed to be the right stuff, and about halfway through, man, you start feeling alarms going off inside of you. It starts really bugging you. Man, something's not right. Anybody ever experienced that? That's what John's going to talk about here. Look what it says in verse 20. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. What he's saying that if you've really invited Christ into your life, that the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. He anointed you to be a priest. He anointed you to become the bride of Christ. He anointed you to become a child of God. You've received an anointing from the Holy One. I want every one of you to have that confidence. Some of you have asked me, like, you know, do I need to do certain specific manifestations of the Spirit? For example, some of you have been in backgrounds where you were taught, you know, that you have to speak in uh, some language or a foreign language or some heavenly language. And if you've never done that, then you haven't been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's one of the gifts of the Spirit. It's one of the gifts, but it's not the only gift. 
And so if someone tells you you haven't received the Holy Spirit because you don't manifest them like I do, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Not everybody manifests the same gift of the Spirit. If you have invited Jesus into your heart, then you were anointed with the Spirit. Some of you are going to have the gift of mercy. You're going to be powerfully motivated to bestow kindness to people. And some of you ladies will build, like for people mood in your neighborhood, man, there's tremendous urgings in your heart to bring a pie over to them and begin to help them to get into the neighborhood. And you're doing it all because you want to reach them for Jesus. There's some of you others that are going to be really gifted in planning and administration. In other words, when you see things that need to be done, man, the Holy Spirit within you just really moves you to go A plus B plus C. Man, we can really do it. And you become administrators in the family. Some of you are leaders that have a great vision for what God can do. And you feel stirrings in your heart. And when you begin to get excited about what God can do, you feel the stirring inside of you. And when you speak, you lift us up. You encourage us. You give us a vision of what God can do. Some of you are encouragers. You don't go through a day without writing an encouraging note or getting the telephone and calling. I want you to know that there's many different manifestations of the Spirit. Billy Graham is one of the most powerful examples of someone that's been anointed with the Spirit with the gift of evangelism. Some of you have that gift, and you don't necessarily do it in big crusades, but you've got a passion for unbelievers. And when we're with you, you create a passion for unbelievers in our own heart. Some of you that are gifted by the Spirit in evangelism, you can't go for a, a day without having contact with unbelievers. You long to get out there and share your faith. And you help us, and you train us, and you motivate us. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior, you are anointed with the Spirit. Don't judge each other because someone doesn't have your gift. Some of you aren't mouths, like one of my major gifts. I'm a teacher and, and a, an exhorter and an encourager with my mouth. I'm a big mouth in the family of God. My wife Mary isn't a mouth. Man, she can take one spiritual uh, gift test after another and she comes out every time. She doesn't like to get up before audiences. Man, she can give my messages in one sentence. She can summarize. You say, well, let's get her up here, man. We can get through quick. <laughs> Mary has the gift of administration and, and gifts of mercy. And she has a gift of, that where she wants to give hospitality. But she's not a mouth in the family of God. She's not a teacher. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have the Holy Spirit. I can't say as a husband, well, you're not a mouth, Mary, so you're not, you're not anointed with the Spirit. And I want you to realize if you've come to the place in your life that you've invited Jesus into your heart, I want you to hear the Apostle John say, you've received an anointing from the Holy One. And I want you to relish that anointing. I want us to all work together as this gigantic Holy Spirit-inspired body that's alive with Him. We all need one another. We need all of the gifts. And man, we've got tremendous challenges ahead. We've received anointing from the Holy One to be able to touch the whole world with this incredible message about forgiveness in Jesus. And it's take every one of you. You've received an anointing from the Holy One. Now this anointing not only gifts you for active ministry in the body of Christ, but it also gifts you internally with discernment. All of you need to exercise 
Because there's no guarantee, whether it's in a Sunday school class or in a WANA meeting or as we're teaching Sunday morning, it's always important for us to be listening and exercising our gift of discernment. He says, I do not need to write any of you that you do not know the truth because you do know it. God's truth abides in you because no lie is of the truth. The Savior that you've received is the ultimate truth teller. Isn't that great? One of the discerning things that happens to you when you believe in Jesus and accept him in your life is you have met the ultimate truth teller. You know, as I look back over my life, I can remember sitting in classrooms where I was totally wowed by the teacher. I mean, I was just swept off my feet with their teaching ability and I was excited about what they taught me. But you know, as I look back over what they taught me now, I have to laugh. They didn't teach me the truth. Man, it was a bunch of of hype. It wasn't worthy to build my life upon. And that's really disconcerting. As you grow older, you find out that there's a whole lot of people that you listen to and it turned out they didn't really know what reality was. They weren't really in touch with what counts. But you know, as I look back over my life, man, my precious mom and dad sang Jesus loves me to me when I was in my crib. When I was five years old, I invited Jesus into my heart. I heard that still small voice. You know, I'm so glad to hear years and years later, Jesus keeps telling me the truth. Isn't that great? And I'm so glad that one split second into eternity that I'm going to see him face to face and I'm going to find out I made the right faith decision. I met the right truth teller. What truth is, is what's real. What truth is, is what's going to last. What truth is, is one split second into eternity, what you're really going to see. And no human being on planet Earth can escape the challenge of living right on the edge and having to put their faith and confidence in someone. And John is saying that the Holy Spirit in us gives us a spirit of truth. And that means that you can connect with the truth. In other words, as you're listening to me today, if you've been born again into God's family, you start to resonate with me. You start to be encouraged. You start to be lifted up. That's why we gather together. Because this is awesome. And I can feel the reality of God giving me insight and giving me encouragement and giving me strength and lifting me up. John is saying that we have received the spirit of truth. Then he says this. No lie. Who is the liar? Now we need to tell us. I say, well, how can I really know when someone's teaching me the wrong thing? How can I know when it's really not what Jesus wants me to learn? He says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. Now those are powerful words. Let me read them again. Who is the liar? It's the person that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, for us as an American audience, you know, that doesn't really do so much. You say, well, Jesus Christ, sure, I mean, everybody in Midlothian, everybody in Waxahatch, everybody in Cedar Hill, everybody in this whole area, man, they know Jesus Christ. The reason that's so is that for us as Americans, names, like I've often taught you, are just labels on the outside of a can. Like some of you are called Beverly, and some of you are called Jane, some of you are called Elaine, you know, some of you are called Wallace, some of you are called Stuart, and on and on. A whole bunch of you don't even know what your name means. What happened is your, your bouncing baby was born. You were bouncing there with your mom. And she looked at you and said, oh, yeah, that would be great. Let's call him something. And I like the sound of that. That's the way we name people for the most part in the American culture. Not so in the Old Testament culture. 
You see, when it says, how will you know whether someone's lying? And here are two basic ways you can know whether someone's lying or not. Number one, you will know someone's lying if they don't believe that Jesus is Jesus. You say, well, Dave, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. You see, the name Jesus, when John wrote these words, his audience that heard John writing this letter, when they heard the letter that says, how will you know a liar? It will be the person that denies that Jesus is the Christ. When they heard the name Jesus, they heard a sentence in a way. And what they heard is, he is the Savior, or he will save. I've often taught you, but I want to underscore it again. Remember when Gabriel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, it's okay. I know you're all upset, and I would be upset too if my fiancée was pregnant. You know, that's really a heavy-duty thing before you get married, to suddenly find out, you know, the woman that you love is pregnant. And Gabriel says, but don't sweat it, Joseph. I can see Joseph going, what are you kidding? Don't sweat it. Man, this is bad news. He says, no, no, you'll never figure out what God did. This is, a, this is a very special deal. This is a special deal, Isaiah 7. So she hasn't known anybody. Just a miracle's taken place. So then Gabriel says, well, let's move on to other things. The virgin birth is going to take place. We've got to get on to naming the child. So Gabriel says, Joseph, you are to call the name of the child Jesus. And it wasn't just the label on the outside of a personality. Gabriel went on to say this, because he will save his people. Finish it with me. He will save his people from there. Aren't you thrilled for that? What our whole unity factor is about is we have met the only, one and only Savior that's ever been born, that will ever live, that can deal with the greatest enemy that you have. He will save his people from their sins. You know, your sins are going to destroy you. Your sins are the wages of death. Your sin are going to keep you separated from God forever and ever. He doesn't grade in the curve. You're going to be in offices this week that have the idea, well, I'm better than you are. Man, I don't, I'm not nearly as big a hypocrite as you are, and I keep my, my income tax pretty good. You're going to meet a whole lot of people that say, I'm not nearly as bad a sinner as you are. Well, I got news for you. In hell, there will be a great gradation. God will make it all fair, and, and maybe the people that you work with will be a little bit higher than some of the other ones. But there's only one person that's ever lived that can save them from their sins. A whole bunch of our kids are going to grow up and they're going to go away to university and they're going to be in a religious classroom. And a very brilliant, learned PhD will say, we're going to teach you about comparative religions. And we want to teach you what's really true. You know, your mom and dad, you know, they're kind of a little bit old and they don't really know quite what's going on. You see, you live in a great big world. If you were born in Egypt then you would have been raised worshiping Allah, but you would have believed that Muhammad was his prophet. In fact, your creed would be that you worship Allah as the one true God and Muhammad is his prophet. And you would go to the mosque and you would fulfill the five pillars of Islam. And isn't that great? What a great religion. If you were raised in a Jewish home, then you would be raised that you need to be a follower of Moses. If you were raised in a conservative Orthodox home, they would teach you you need to obey the laws of Moses. You really need to know Exodus chapter 20. And you really need to know Deuteronomy chapter 5. You really need to know Moses. You're a child of Abraham and you're a follower of Moses. And if you really want to be with it, you're going to really respect those that are born in the Jewish culture. Because those that are born in the Jewish culture, they follow Moses. 
Those that are born in, a, in an Islamic culture, they follow Muhammad. You happen to be a born in a Western culture, an American culture, especially the Texan. You're a follower of Jesus. And isn't it night? There's Jesus and there's Muhammad and there's Moses. And doesn't that sound great? They all taught basically the same thing. They all taught basically the same doctrines and we all have so much things in common. That all sounds so good. Isn't that, doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what some of you want to believe? Sure, there's a real pull in all of our hearts. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. We're going to make it. We'll all get there different ways. But I got news for you. That's a lie. That is a total lie. What I just told you is a lie. You say, Dave, how could that ever be a lie? Because Muhammad can't save you from your sins. I just challenge you to read about Muhammad. If you're going to be really a person of truth, then you ought to read Muhammad's right, you know, the, the things that were recorded about Muhammad. Muhammad himself didn't write down his stuff. His followers did. But you read in the Quran about the real Muhammad. You're going to find out Muhammad didn't promise people he could save them from their sins. You're going to find out if you were ruling with Muhammad, that, man, if, if I was in Muhammad's court, man, he'd take Mary. And he would say, man, I want your wife. And you had no choice. He just took her. And then he got another revelation from Allah. Allah says Muhammad needs some relief. Take the women. I've even read Islamic imams that will say he was so holy, that's what gave him the right to do that. What I want to challenge you, I want you to become a man or woman of truth. I want you to know that Islam doesn't teach what I'm teaching you. None of you that have been raised in our church family, there is a mighty difference between what you were raised about and what you're hearing now. I want you to know, don't you believe for a second in a university classroom it's all the same, because it is not. If you're really a follower of Moses, I want you to raise your hand in that class and say, you know, I don't think you have the foggiest idea what Moses taught. You're telling me that Moses... That if I'm going to be Jewish, I need to follow Moses. The Moses that I read about in the Old Testament gave me a moral law that's the greatest moral law that's ever been given. The agony of it is that no one's ever been able to keep it. So if I'm going to get forgiveness for my sins from Moses, then, man, I'm going to end up dead. I can't even keep the first one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then the last one really puts a nail in the coffin. It says, thou shalt not covet. And I walk into a big mall and I spend the whole afternoon coveting. You're going to tell me Moses is going to give me forgiveness of my sins? Why don't you read the real Moses? The real Moses said that another prophet was going to come that was going to be even greater than him. And when Jesus came, Jesus said, if you would read Moses really carefully, then you'd believe in me. And I hate to say it in relativistic, pluralistic culture. You really want to be Jewish. You really want to be a follower of Moses. You know what? You're going to end up right at the feet of the ultimate Jew. And his name is the Savior, Jesus. He will save us from our sins. Our whole church was founded not by a bunch of American, Puritan, Gentiles. Our whole church was founded by Middle Eastern Jews that believe with all their heart that that little baby born in Bethlehem that stretched his arms on Calvary that rose again, they believe with all their heart. In fact, they lost their lives for the fact that he was the Savior. He's also the Messiah. It says those that believe the lie are those that deny that Jesus is the one and only Savior and that's connected with He's the one and only Savior because he is the Messiah. And what they were saying in the first century, man, those were really fighting words in the first century. 
Because that's what founded this new precious group called the body of Christ. They believed that all those promises from the Old Testament, that a great deliverer would come, that he would be born in the tribe of Judah, that he would be a son of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would do mighty miracles. According to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, he would be pierced, and then he would be risen from the dead. The early church believers, and you need to join with them, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed Jesus was the anointed one. That's why in our own day we have Jews for Jesus, which culturally is a great enigma because many Jews today feel that that's a total contrast because they just think of Christianity as a culture and they think of it as Christendom. And John the Apostle is straightening out our thinking says, no, 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 no. Christianity, real Christianity, biblical Christianity is not a culture. In fact, when it becomes a culture, it becomes murderous and power-hungry, and it hurts people. But real biblical faith is a relationship with a person, and Jesus is that person, and he is the Christos. And the word Christ means the anointed one. It's the Hebrew Mashiach. And that's what we need to be committed to as a church family. It's not because we're trying to take our culture and put it upon a Jewish people. It's because our Savior was Jewish and he's the one that can provide forgiveness of sins for Jewish people. And I want you as a church family and I want myself included to be perfectly clear on this. Jesus is the one and only Savior. He is the promised one from the Old Testament. And truth is truth. You see, if something's really true, then it's true. And I'm not the one that decides what's true. You see, the split second you enter into eternity you're going to be face-to-face with this Savior, with this Messiah. And you're going to have either invited him into your life and known him as your precious Savior and been born into his family, or you're going to be lost. That's what the Bible says. You've got to go there his way. And John is saying that when you receive him into your life, that you get an anointing from the Holy One. We're at a big Bill Glass rally. And they had guys that have done tremendous studies in prison ministry and, and, and prison work. And they talked about the 250,000 inmates that are incarcerated throughout the United States and the burden that they had to reach them. But then Bill, as an evangelist, said something really important. He said, I want you to know that we believe with all of our hearts the reason we're going to be in over 50 prisons this coming year is because we believe that Jesus is the only answer He's the only one that can transform somebody and take someone that was a, was, a, was a criminal and had murdered people or had stolen or done something bad and he can make them a brand new person. Only Jesus can do that. Do you believe that? That's what John is telling you. You've received an anointing from the Holy One. And what it means is that, that the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit that resists that, starts teaching pluralism, starts teaching relativity. And starts teaching that there's many different ways. It says, such a man is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Those are really powerful words. You know what John is saying? How many of you have met people? You're talking to them, they really want to get close to God, right? Lots of people want to get close to God. The next issue comes, how do I get close to God? And John the Apostle is saying that the spirit of Antichrist will tell you there's many ways to get close to God. And you can discover your own way. You can make your own journey. But the precious anointing of the real God says, if you want to get vertically connected with God, you're going to have to connect with his son. 
The scripture is saying that if you connect with Jesus, you're connected with God. If you're not connected with his son, then you're not connected with the father. You see, the father and the son love each other. The father and the son bear witness to one another. The Holy Spirit bears witness. And this is the truth in a pluralistic society that teaches you that you can decide for yourself anything you want and you can go your own way. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that is the spirit of Antichrist. It's a lie. It's going to be the biggest lie and it will hurt you. It will hurt your family. But just the opposite will give you life. You need to nail it down. I have invited the one and only Savior into my life. I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe that he can deliver me from my sins. And I'm not going to believe this relativism and the plurality that's all around me. Instead, I'm going to commit myself to the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm going to believe we're going to radically commit ourselves if we teach our children about him, if we teach our young people about him, if we reach out into all of our neighborhoods with him, that we're going to see him do mighty, transforming, creative things in giving people hope, in giving them life, in giving them forgiveness for their sins, giving them victory even in death. That's the choice. On the one hand, there's hope, there's life, there's health, there's vitality, and it's all in the name of Jesus. On the other side, there is all the human pride of intellectualism and all the things we can figure out for ourselves, a denial of the uniqueness of Jesus, a denial of his messiahship, we have to decide which side are we going to be on. As for me and my house, we've decided we're going to serve the one and only Jesus on this side, not on the Antichrist side, but on the right with him. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, as we expose the spirit and the attitude of Antichrist, we'd ask you, Lord, that you'd protect us from ever giving in to his lies. Their eyes are closed, and as we have our heads bowed, I mentioned earlier in the message is that if you have no real desire for the word of God, if you have no real hunger to be gathered together with his people, then you need to ask yourself, have I really met Christ? You say, Dave, I've never heard anything like this before. This is amazing that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary for me and Jesus rose again. And I just can't believe what you said, that Jesus is alive and he wants to come in my life. You can invite Jesus into your life. You can transfer from being part of a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom that yields death, and just like that in a moment of time, you can be given eternal life as a precious gift. Say, well, Dave, how do I do that? All you need to do right there where you're sitting is just pray like this. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, you that was born of the Virgin Mary, that did all those miracles, Just talk to Jesus. He's right here with us in the presence of his spirit. The one that died on the cross of Calvary. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross of Calvary for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose again from the dead. And from the depths of my heart as I look inside my life, I I just want to tell you that I know that I can never pay the bill for my sin myself. And so I just want you to come into my life. I want to invite you to come in and take up residence in my heart. And as you come inside my life, I want to thank you that based upon what you did for me on Calvary, that my sins are forgiven. If you've never really nailed that decision down, why don't you just nail down and make sure 
that you've let this precious, personal, one and only Savior into your life. Some of you say, well, Dave, I know that Jesus is in my life, but I've been disobeying him. And I know, the Holy Spirit's talked to me about some things, and I've gone ahead and ignored him. And I've just gone ahead and and rebelled against him. And I, I started doing it, and he really kept on after me, but I've... I've hardened my heart, and as I've heard you teach about the Savior, I can hear his voice again. And I want to get really close to Jesus again. Here on this first day of a new week, I want to swear my allegiance again to that one and only Savior. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Don't take it for granted. Don't take that lightly. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't allow the evil one to deceive you with his lies. False ideas about eternal truths. Desires to not take the gathering of the family of God seriously. Desires just to get out there and get away. The Apostle John, as a precious elder in in the body of Christ, has exposed the danger of those things. Let's return to Jesus and allow him to be the king of our life and the Lord of our life. Let's confess to him some of the things that have blocked our intimacy with him during this past week. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for your warnings. I thank you for your apostle that exposed not only this terrible satanic person that's going to come during the tribulation period, but I'm thankful that we could focus on an attitude, a spirit of rebellion against you and a denial of, the, of the, the deity of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus. And I'd ask you, Lord, my, my prayer, Lord, is that you would just put a tremendous hedge of protection around this whole precious body of believers. Keep us in the truth. Keep us, as we grow, focused on the deep truths, the realities of Scripture. And may your son be honored and glorified in Jesus' name.